Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Megan Miller, and I'm excited to share with you a new feature of the Do Better podcast. I have been having some conversations with my friend Mike Brandy on the new app called Stereo. And Mike is not a behavior analyst. We actually met a long time ago because we were both debaters. So he's very analytical and he's also a parent. And we're talking about just a lot of different topics around parenting and life within the Stereo app. So I've taken some of the recordings from Stereo and turned them into little podcast episodes. So I hope you enjoy this first clip where we're focusing on talking about spanking. Do better. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I am very well. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to hear you. I don't really see you, but I hear you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I see your avatar. Well done. Yeah, I still don't think it quite looks like me. They didn't really have the right hair color or skin tone somehow, but that's fine. So I, I just want to go ahead and introduce the talk. I mean, um, I'm I'm so privileged uh, to have to, to be speaking to Dr. Megan Miller today. Uh, this uh, person is somebody who uh, has had an extensive history with behavioral science, uh, talking about behavior and how it affects us all. Um, I I don't know, you know, how deep we want to go into into our relationship with regard to how we know each other. Uh, we can probably get into that, and that that might be a good introduction. Uh, but I, I, I would like to say for those who are listening that Megan and I do know each other. Uh, I want to put that out there because, um, you know, at some point as we're talking, it'll probably become very obvious that we are not strangers. And so, um, you know, I had the privilege of meeting her a long time ago in, in, in an amazing setting, which was debate. And, um, you know, we were both debaters in college and, um, you know, we, we competed against each other and we just, we, we, we had a lot of meeting of the minds. And so for me, it's an absolute privilege to have seen the evolution of this person from a college student into a, you know, to, to a doctor. And so, um, I, again, I am privileged and I welcome you and I am so happy to be able to have this talk, Megan. Thanks, Mike. I'm super excited too. I didn't know about the stereo app until like a few weeks ago when you, uh, invited me to listen to a talk you were having and I'm really enjoying it. So thanks for inviting me. And I'm excited for our discussion tonight. Yeah, so just uh, just as a little introductory thing, um, I'll give a brief introduction, and then I hope you can expand on it, Megan, because obviously you know yourself better than I could ever introduce. But uh, so Megan is a doctor. She is uh, she studies behavior, and she is the founder of the collective, the the um, the Do Better Collective, which is part of the Do Better Movement. And for all of those who are listening, I would ask you, I would urge you to go to collective.dobettermovement.us. I repeat that. That's collective.dobettermovement.us. And you'll find a lot of her talks. There are podcasts that she's part of. There's a lot of different studies. And there's a whole community of people who are really interested in just sort of moving the bar in what we would assume is the proper direction uh, for positive uh, impact on the earth. So if you wanna speak more to that, Megan, kind of introduce yourself and, and tell us where you are and how you have how you founded Do Better Movement and where, what, your, what your place is in that. 
Sure. So I'm a, um, my doctorate is in special education and behavior analysis, which a lot of people aren't super familiar with typically. My primary focus, I mostly work with families and I provide coaching and training at this point, but my specialization is autism. And I also have a, a son who's almost five and he's taught me a ton about behavior and development and learning more than probably I learned in my college courses. So that's been quite interesting. I started the Do Better Movement. Initially, it was focused around behavior analysts like myself who were primarily working with uh, families and autistics and maybe didn't receive the best training so they needed to do better in what they were practicing. And so uh, the first year of the movement, I was really focused on helping to disseminate best practices within autism and special education and behavior analysis. But it's kind of evolved over time and we still have a big focus with other behavior analysts. However, we've brought it out to parents and um, people just working in behavioral sciences in general who have a commitment to just doing better in life. And it's been, it's become apparent that a lot of the things that we do as behavior analysts and the things that I was concerned about for our field, we do need to just be worried about as humans in general and broadly speaking, trying to see if we can shift people into interacting in more positive ways in, in ways that are more curious and seeking to understand each other as opposed to debating, which is funny because that's where we met, as opposed to like debating yeah. and trying to win an argument. Um, so right. a big focus for, we just created the collective uh, opened in November and the big focus and one of the big focuses in there is going to be around teaching people how to be better listeners and just better at um, seeking to understand their fellow humans instead of trying to be divisive and, and like one up each other. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm interested because you said a couple things that I kind of, I kind of want to unpack a little bit. So you spoke about how your son, you know, has taught you a hell of a lot more, it seems than even your training was. And I think you specifically said that your training as a behavior analyst, um, that they could have actually done better with regard to your training, that when you came away from that, especially now the experiences that you've had, when you look back, you say, well, even, even the training, even if you even if you came into it as somebody who was wholeheartedly trying to do the best you could, the training that was, that was, that was given to you, uh, was lacking in some way, in a way that you obviously were able to learn by experience through your son. Can you talk a little bit about why, why it is that your training or maybe, maybe the field itself was lacking when you were going through that training? Probably a few reasons. So my training in particular was actually pretty great. I went to Florida State, as you know, for my master's. And then I went to Ohio State for my PhD. And both of those programs are, have, are really highly respected and really well known in the field, both for behavior analysis and psychology, and then also separately for special education. So I learned quite a lot about the science and I would say 90% of the stuff that I learned was, was really great. And my professors and mentors were really flexible and open to a variety of different ways of doing things. However, there was, there's also as a science, sometimes there is a tendency to 
become very overly rigid and, and overly focused on research where uh, people kind of forget that like contextual variables exist where just because yeah. something is one way in like a lab and a highly structured setting in a very controlled environment doesn't mean that's going to translate into a busy classroom or a home environment or the public park or something like that. Um, so that's one downfall in my graduate program. Um, at, at Ohio State, it was a lot more flexible because you had more of a multidisciplinary approach where there were behavior analysts and educators mixing together and you kind of got more of a perspective on like different ways of seeing things. The other issue though, is our field grew very rapidly. So when I joined, when I went to grad school starting in 2005, uh, there was about, I don't know, 500 or so maybe um, new behavior analysts in like a year's time. Um, and that's like a projection that's probably a bit too high. Now in like even like 15 years later, we have, so when I got certified in 2007, I was the 3,478 BCBA. And now we have over 50,000 BCBAs. So in 15 years time, the field grew from 3,000 to over 50,000. That's a lot right. of people getting trained yeah. in a graduate level uh, profession in a very short period of time. So who were super, who were the people supervising all of those people? How are they getting proper training? Um, how rapidly yeah. are they going through their coursework? Like there's a whole lot of issues when a field grows that quickly. And what, what year was that where, where you saw that start change, that, 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 that sort of quick development in your field? So it was, they had graphs that they'll show of this at our conferences, but basically it's like a steady growth until probably about 2010 and online programs became really popular. And there's nothing wrong with online coursework. And obviously we're all like online right now with COVID and everything. Um, right. But there was a lot more access to the graduate programs because before the online program started, you had to physically move and there were only like 15 to 20 universities. So in 2010, there was this big explosion of online access and funding increased. So a lot of states started funding the work that we do through insurance, which didn't exist before. So there was more of a demand than had ever been. So more universities were willing to start programs to um, churn out essentially people that had jobs waiting for them. Um, so there was a jump then and then probably again in 2015. So right now, 50% of our field was certified in the last five years. Okay. So if you think about like and or all of the really well-established practices, 50% of the people in those fields are not, did not get certified or licensed in the last five years, right? So like who mentored us, who trained people, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's actually a nice segue because we're going to be talking about some very specific topics here, guys. And for those who are listening, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, please follow Do Better, uh, follow myself, Mono Loco. Um, we're going to be talking about behavior and um, how it affects uh, a lot of different things. Um, so a, a lot of the different topics, some of the topics we'll be talking about tonight is childhood development. We're going to be talking about spanking. We're going to be talking about positive, passive versus negative, aggressive teaching. 
We're going to be talking about toilet training. And we're going to start with children, but then we're going to get into some other things. We're going to get into something political. We're going to get into cancel culture. We're going to get into the problems with the left and, and maybe the problems with the right. Uh, but know, knowing that both of us tend to be more left, I, it seems more apt that we talk about the left and, uh, and, and, and kind of try to, you know, try to suss out you know why it is that we have problems on our side i think that would be a, a better discussion uh, although all discussions are welcome and then we're going to also talk about sleep and dreaming uh we're going to get into that as well so we have a lot of topics to talk about but i think it was an interesting segue when you talked about you know your training and how it was sort of rigid training uh when it was at ohio state or or, or yeah at ohio, at ohio state versus ohio state you know, was yeah, Ohio State was a bit more flexible. Florida State was flexible, but like our training in general in the field is very rigid. I think so. Yeah, so I think that's a great segue with regard to going, we're just going straight into the, the spanking debate with regard to you know how we train our children. So I heard you say like you know you have you had a rigid training, and then you know when it was more multifaceted, when it was more experiential, um, you felt like you got more out of it. I guess my question to you would be around spanking is, I, I would assume, and I, I don't necessarily just assume it, I've experienced it, that there's a lot of people who hold on to this idea with regard to spanking children, and they think that there is a time and a place for it. In other words, it's not that we should just take it out of the equation altogether, which I know that a lot of people would like to do, and I, I happen to be one of those people. I, I would prefer, and I, I, I really do make it my my entire goal to not spank at all now have i made those have i made mistakes in that endeavor of course i have my question would be and i know it's a it's a it's a broad one but from a behavior standpoint right is there ever a place for spanking uh so if we're going from like what the research says no there's not a place for spanking um there's typically most of the research that's been done has shown that there's negative effects on the child even though people will say like i turned out fine and i was sick there's enough right. research to show the negative outcomes um higher issues as adults that it wouldn't be recommended and in our field specifically we focus on figuring out the least intrusive things to do first and even then like most people would say spanking is a punishment you spank a child to have them stop doing something we have a whole array of different ways to help shift and change how someone's responding and, and interacting with things that don't include any sort of physical interaction so we would we would always recommend those procedures first um, and as a, just in general, or as a field, I don't believe any behavior analyst that I know would ever recommend thinking. However, in some of our early research in like the 70s, there are published articles where um, some of the participants, they did do like a loud clap with screaming no, or they, they did like snap the, the person on the hand. But that was, that was back in the 70s. Those, are, those types of things did not happen in our practices or research now um, so you can just kind of see that shift it's interesting when you think about how things culturally get passed down from family member to family member like my my dad did this so i'm gonna do this or whatever um right but when you look at the research it's like okay that happened in the 70s but that would never have proved as something to study now you know 
Right. So, so when you look at spanking, so let me give you a scenario, right? Because we can we can talk about this clinically, and we can talk about studies. But I can already hear the listeners who who, who have children, and who go, okay, well, that's nice for a scientist to say that, right? Like it's nice that like we have studies that say this, right? But what about the real world? Like, what about like my daughter, right? Goes to cross the street, right? And a car's, she's about to get hit by a car. And my reaction is that I grab her. And, and of course, that this has to do with my lineage, right? It's because I was taught this way. But what about if I just grab her, I bring her back, and my initial reaction is to just give her a nice sweat because I want her to be as scared as what the situation calls for, if that makes sense, right? Like, so that it's not that we're spanking as a tool uh, that is um, sort of compulsory, right? But that we're spanking as a reaction so that we can inflict the fear upon the child equal to the, to the situation that is, has been presented rather than, oh, you didn't do your homework, spank, right? right. Which is a very different scenario. How do, how do you feel about that? So I still wouldn't do it. Um, and I'm not saying, like, there's definitely moments where as a parent, you react in the moment and then afterwards you're like, what did I just do? Like, you're human and mistakes will be made or whatever. There are some parents who have a rule that, like, they will spank in those situations, but not no other situations. I wouldn't judge that. I, I think each family is going to be slightly different in those aspects, but I think it's more important that as a parent, you're reflecting on why you did that. So did you do it in the heat of the moment because you were just so upset and you're now modeling for your kid when you get this upset, it's okay to hit someone? Or was it a controlled response where you're um, you're, you're kind of trying to, to show them like this, this, was, this is very dangerous? Again, I would never do that. I think there's better ways to... Um, to teach a child about those types of things and to have it like a, either whether it's a discussion about it or we might, there's a, a thing that we do a lot where it's, it's very well established also in the research, but as a parent um, called behavioral skills training, where if you're worried about something, so if you're worried about a child um, picking up a gun and like shooting someone, or you're worried about them going off with a stranger or crossing the street or touching a hot stove, you set up practice scenarios with them and you talk to them about why. And even for like a two or three year old, you can simplify it. And then you can set up situations where you say, okay, so we're, here's the street. And then um, you, the, the ideal would be that you would even kind of practice in like a tempting way. So, a, you know, toy might be in the street or something in a situation where you, you're in like a cul-de-sac and you've walked off the other side of the street, but the kid doesn't know that. So, it's a, so that's getting very it's clinical. A, it's a controlled, <laughs> but, right. So, so it's a controlled situation. And this is the thing is yeah. that I, again, again, I hear, I hear in my head, I hear the parents in my head going, that's all fine and good, Megan, but are we really doing that? Do I have the time when I work two jobs to, to set yeah. up this clinical cul-de-sac situation? So <laughs> I'll bring it, I'll bring it up. It is. So I'll bring it. I'll bring it to you. I'll bring it to you in a different way. I'll ask you personally, okay? And, and I, I, if you don't want to speak personally, that's fine. But I mean, I think it, it would it would help a lot of the listeners. You know, you have a child. You have a son. Uh, did did you ever make the mistake? You, you talked before about how sometimes it's a reaction, and, and oh, we can't judge that because look, it happens. We're human. Can you speak to any situation where you were human 
where you made, quote unquote, a mistake, or maybe you didn't think it was a mistake, but maybe something happened that sort of crossed the line for you that you can sort of speak to, that you can be, that, that can relate, not so much as a scientist, but a little bit more as a mother to what we could all be relating to on a day to day. Right. So not, not from a spanking perspective, because that's just something I'm heavily committed to like not doing. And I don't even, it's not even something I have to physically like think about. It's just, it's not something that comes up for me, but there have been moments where, um, especially if I already have a lot going on in the day, I'm stressed, I'm tired or whatever is happening. And then if Taylor's not listening or if he, um, maybe he threw something at me or he's screaming, in that heat of the moment, I might scream at him or um, it's usually mostly just screaming instead of trying to stay calm and com I don't know if, if you all can hear me because there was like a sound and now there's none. Okay, I'm just gonna keep talking and we'll see what happens. Um, so as like a mom, there's definitely even been like things, even words I've used, like if I, um, I'm not calm enough about the words I use and things like that too. Uh, but then I always reflect upon those. So I'm always afterwards, I have reflection times where I'm like, okay, how could I do that differently next time? How could I do it better next time so that I don't have to put him through that same situation? I do have a question though. Okay, let's 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 dive a little bit, but let me be the psychologist for a second. And let's let me let me dive in a little bit to your childhood because it seems as if you're very, very adamantly and, and, and maybe even successfully able to to not spank, okay, your child. I, I can tell you from my personal experience, the reason why I am that way is because I was spanked. I was beat, in my in, in my opinion, uh, very, very a lot in my life. And so given that experience for me, it, it became a very important thing that when I had a child, I wasn't going to do that. Now, as I said, I failed in that endeavor initially in, in many ways. And then, as you said, I, I then reflected upon it, and I'm, I'm a better person today for not for having done that, because I, I, I always will regret doing whatever it is that I did, but I certainly, I certainly will not continue doing it, if that makes sense. So my question to you is, when you were growing up, was that something that your parents instilled in you? Were you ever hit? Do you have brothers and sisters that were hit? What was your experience as a young person with the spanking situation? So my dad spanked. I honestly don't remember a ton with me because I, I guess I figured out quickly how to um, talk to him instead of get spanked. So if I was in trouble for something, I would like negotiate and talk to him about it and stay calm. But my brother, I have a twin brother and he would, if, if a spanking was going to happen, he basically, he really pushed my dad's emotional buttons and he would get spanked and then he would laugh and then my dad would spank him harder. Um, right. And so there was this whole like cycle between the two of them that would happen quite a bit. And I saw that and like what effect that had on my brother. Um, and of course, if you asked my dad, he'd probably say, well, it's no big deal. Right. Um, but if you asked my brother, he'd have a whole different story to tell about that. So I think that's right, one right. of the reasons that I'm 
so adamant about it. And then the other two are the work I've done with the, um, the children that I work with. So I've worked with highly, um, significantly intensively aggressive, like bruising, biting, kicking, hitting, breaking walls, like all of that kind of stuff, children. And I don't have to spank them to change their behavior. So if I don't have to spank a child who is needing a lot more support in their environment to learn how to navigate this world, I just don't see why we would have to spank like any other type of child. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. All right, guys. So for our four listeners and for those who want to continue to listen to us, please share our talk. We have a lot to talk about tonight. We're going to be talking about spanking as we are today. We're here with uh, Dr. Megan Miller, and she has uh, been, um, she's privileged us with her time. Uh, we, we love the class. Thank you, guys. We want to continue talking, but we also love your comments. Uh, so you guys are probably parents. You guys probably have had parents, I would assume. Uh, and if you don't have parents, I'd like to talk about that, too. Uh, so anybody who would leave a comment, ask us some questions. I'm sure there, I'm sure this is a controversial topic. I know it's been controversial in my life because, uh, to your point, Megan, when you talk about, you know, your brother versus you and how your brother probably has something to say about his being spanked versus his father, you know, I'm sure that my father and my mother would have, would have, uh, and, and I've spoken to my mother. You, you heard my mom's talk with me. Um, and she, she has a different, a different perspective on it. Um, you know, my, my view is, you know, from zero to five, you know, there's a, there's a really specific, um, sort of sponge. If, if, if you, if you think of, if you think of a child as a sponge between zero to five, I think that the, the, the sponginess, if you will, of that brain is, is very different than from five to 10 and, and, and exponentially more. So. I think that what happens with, with the reason why I don't want to, I almost, I almost feel like this and correct me if I'm wrong. I almost feel like this is a better statement. If you're going to spank, start spanking at 10 or 11 and see how that works out for you. Because I think, I think that if, if you're going to spank, to me, it would make more sense developmentally that if it's going to quote unquote work properly for whatever that's worth, you would almost need that person to be more rational about why that's happening. So I'll give you an example. When I was, you know, six years old, let's say, right. I remember very distinctly, my father would, would read me from the Bible, right? This is the reason why you're getting spanked. And, and, you know, and, and here's what the Bible says about that. And so the point is he was trying to do the quote unquote right thing. Right. Like he was trying to do it systematically. He wasn't trying to be reactive. He was trying to do the thing that he thought was best, but he was trying to impose that logic upon somebody who was zero to six. Right. So my claim is, and, 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 and you as a doctor, just, you know, debunk my claim. My claim is if you're going to spank, why don't we start spanking at around 10? I think that if we did that, it would change the game a little bit because we would then probably not spank. But if we did, I think that there's a, there's something about the development of that child's mind at that age that might inform the parent as to whether or not to spank properly in a different way than when they get away with it from zero to six or whatever. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, it makes sense. Um, I, <laughs> I would obviously still say, like, I don't think that there's any... Uh, justification for spanking at any age, but I do agree with Clearly. the logic and the rationale 
of what you're saying. Right. Like, I mean, if you're if if you're looking at what's going on developmentally and what um, a human would understand, depending on their different age, it would um, obviously you're also potentially going to run that higher risk too if they're older. What you're modeling there um, of like when you're upset about something, if you hit you hit someone, right? Um, but right. they would have more of that understanding, like you said, of like why it's happening. Um, but then I would be more fearful that then when they encounter a similar situation, instead of navigating that in a pro-social way, they would just hit the person. Yeah, and that, but that's banking across the board. I mean, that is the fear, or, or that should be the fear right. across across the board. That that what you're teaching right. a child is that the that the response to being this uncomfortable is to lash out, right? I mean, that, that's what that, that's right. what you're modeling. You're, mo- you're modeling that lashing out is the response to uncomfortable feelings. Yep. Okay. So, guys, give us your give us your uh, give us your thoughts, guys. We have four listeners. I'm sure you guys have had thoughts about this. All you got to do is pull down that microphone button, uh, and as long as you leave a comment that's over three seconds, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 you know, so, so you were never hit. So your brother, your twin brother. Well, I was, was I was definitely spanked some, but it, you were. I just don't, okay. it wasn't okay. sufficient enough to like, again, I learned pretty quickly how to, to either not do the things or to talk my way out of the spanking. <laughs> do you, do you think, do you think that that has something to do? And I hate to reduce it to sex, but yeah. it seems like, in our, it seems like in our culture, there is a difference between spanking a a girl, right, or a woman, or, a, you know, let's call it the XX chromosome to not offend anybody, <laughs> there, there, is yeah. something to, there is something about spanking the XX chromosome being a woman versus the XY chromosome being a man. It seems as if it's almost more tolerable to spank a boy than it is a girl, and it almost seems like in your situation, too, you saw that same that same reality. You saw that there was a there was a little bit more leeway to use aggression in that way towards your twin brother, twin brother, versus you. And I don't know. I know that you say that it was more that you were able to sort of rational, you know, rationally sort of respond to whether or not you were getting spanked. But I guess I, I guess I guess I would I would push back on that a little bit only because if you guys were both the same age then you both should have probably had the same kind of rationale anyway. Maybe the difference was that you, simply it was that you were a girl and the one doing the hitting was the man being your father. Maybe that had something to do with it. What, what do you have to say about that? I definitely thought about that too. I don't disagree with you at all. My brother and I are very different in how we navigate all sorts of things. So I think it was probably a mixture of just how we both, respond to things being a factor and yes the fact that he was a boy um I think my dad I think you also get that sort of I'll show you who's boss attitude was like way more present but for their interactions versus like our interactions yeah right and when 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 you were ever hit or when you ever saw people, your brother getting hit what was the um what was the methodology there? Because I shared with you, you know, with me, it, it spanned the gambit. So for me, it was everything from, you know, a, a, a very structured spanking so that it was, I knew, for example, 
and it was written on the board. I mean, we had a, we had a whiteboard and it was written. And it was like, if, if you, if you get a D on a test or if you, you know, don't do your homework, my parents used to call them WAPs, W-A-P, right? WAPs, which is very different than what WAP is now. <laughs> but WAP is very different today. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't that. It was getting hit by a paddle for me. And so it was, okay, you get four WAPs, for example, if you don't do your homework or, you know, if you climb the tree or whatever, you know, that, you know, they, so they, it was very systematic, but it was, it was that. And then it was also like, oh my God, like I saw you, like climbing the tree, for example, like, you know, I remember one day my dad, like would, he told me one day, he goes, don't you ever. So we, we used to live by this canal and, um, I, I forget how old I was. Maybe I was like seven or whatever. And this is the eighties, mind you. So, you know, it, it seems weird to people today, but we were allowed to play outside, like way beyond our neighborhood. We were like allowed yeah. to play outside. And so I used to go be able to go and, and I would climb this tree and I used to love climbing trees. I would get on the very, very tippy top of the tree. And I get it, you know, they were scared. They didn't, you know, he didn't want me to fall off the tree. There was also a canal right there. I could have fallen into the canal and drowned. Okay. And so one day he found me up there and I'll never forget, he just picked up a switch, you know, like in Florida, we have these, um, they're like these long flexible, like limbs, you know, uh, it's hard to describe, but uh, basically it's a stick, but it's really flexible. And uh, he, you know, they were, they were all over the ground. And I remember him just, I saw him from the distance and I knew it was going to happen. And I, I, had to, I had to time my descent from the tree, you know, so that I could run away from him. But he caught me and he just, what? I mean, I mean, I was bruised. It was, um, you know, and then later he said, well, the reason why is because I was scared or whatever. Okay, fine. So did you, you know, when, when, when you experienced banking, even with your brother, it seems to me like your parents maybe didn't have that same approach. I mean, what, what, was, what was the approach that they took? Uh, was it systematic in any way or was it reactive only? It was pretty reactive. Um, I think there were threats given occasionally. We definitely were not as organized. Shout out to your for the whiteboard. Um, we were not. That yeah. did not exist. But um, it, there was definitely like if you do that, you know, if you don't stop, you'll get a spanking. Those types of threats, um, which I think is also part of the difference because I would usually stop and Jason was always the button pusher and like the counter control kid that was like, well, huh, all right, let me see if that really happens. Um, but I think a lot of it was emotional spanking where it was, um, and it was usually start with a hand. I think a belt was used occasionally, but there wasn't any other devices that I can recall. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So yeah. going back Definitely to your, so going back, Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Okay. So yeah. bare bottom. So that was the thing. It had to, it had to inflate. Had, In other words, it wasn't so much about the fear as it was about the initial pain. And I think there mm -hmm. is a difference, right? Yep. Because mm -hmm. you were talking about before, you were talking about how in the 70s, there was a study that talked about how, you know, loud clapping and loud speaking maybe would maybe have the same impact. Uh, yep. And that's, that's, more, that's more about the fear. That's like when you hit a, a dog with a, with a newspaper versus your fist, right? Right. It, it, it's more about the fear aspect. So, so I guess, I guess you do, sort of allow for the, the fear aspect to be, to, to be the motivator in the learning of a child. Where you might draw the line might be where it turns into the pain. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, ever want a, a child doing something out of fear alone. <laughs> I mean, even if, 
like the running out to the street and like that kind of thing at like a really young age. Um, it's still like that. What we call, what we call that in behavior analysis is rule governed behavior. So we would just teach a hard yeah. rule and like really enforce it and follow through on that. Um, and so they're not they're not even necessarily doing it because they understand like getting hit by a car will die because like a two year old is not going to get that. But it's just right. like this is the rule. We don't do like we stop here. We don't go into the road. Um, so I, I can't think of things that I've done to in green like a fear situation uh, but i definitely think if you're looking at spanking or any other type of interaction with a child like you said there's a difference between the the adults and like their motivation and like why they're doing it if if they're doing it like you had mentioned from the very beginning of this to inflict that fear so that the child can stay safe versus it's their own emotional reaction and it's reinforcing to them to get it out of their system to like cause pain to their child. That's complete. That's like two different levels of, um, one would potentially be way more traumatic. Yeah. And I think think that a lot of parents see it this way. Right. And this is not something I agree with because I agree with you, but, but I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, hence the horns. Um, I think that what a lot of parents do is they say, well, I would rather inflict minimal pain now so that they learn about how it could have been ultimately horrible for them with, with, with regard to pain later. So I think that they, I think that parents make this assessment in their brain. They go, okay, if I inflict just a little bit of pain now, you know, the ends justify the means with regard to that pain, right? Uh, and so I agree with you. I think, I think we could do it differently. So for example, I think, so what I do with my daughter and my daughter's about to be three. And what I do is, you know, for example, I get to her, let's say, let's say I need her to do something and she's just not listening. She's being defiant, right? My method is I get down to her level. First of all, I, I, I tell her what to do. You know, I explain something to her. She doesn't get it. I do it again. And then I do it again. I, I happen to have a three for some reason, three thing for me. Okay, maybe that's wrong. But after the third time, right, I then get down to her level. I look her right in the eyes. I might even grab her, not not violently, but just kind of like control her a little bit, like kind of, okay, we're, we're, we're looking in my eyes now. And I say to her something very, uh, very specifically, like, I, I'll, but I'll make sure that we have eye contact and I make sure that she's understanding what I'm saying. But let's be real about what I'm doing. There is a fear aspect of what I'm doing, right? Because I'm bigger, because I'm, you know, there's, there's no way to get around the idea that I am using fear in some way, if we're going to be honest, right? What I'm not doing is inflicting pain, you know? And so I think, I think that, as you said, there is a stark contrast between getting to the point where pain is necessary, if it ever is, versus sort of controlling the situation but definitely, definitely using fear. I don't think we should be dishonest about that. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful conceptualization of it. Um, I probably haven't thought about it that way. So thank you for that analysis. And I'll have to like think on that a bit more. I would say from like an intentional perspective, I don't go into things being like, I'm going to 
talk to you like this or do this to cause fear. <laughs> so right, right, right. Yeah, but it is. I mean, because I, again, I, I'm just being honest about it, right? Like, I know what that what that person, or or I think I know. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've convinced myself that I think I know what that person is feeling because I was there too. I think just by the nature of me being bigger, of me being assertive in a very specific way. I think that there is, I think that does, that does touch on the fear, right? And now, am I going into it wanting to, wanting her to be scared? Well, a little bit, yes, right? Because what I don't want to do is have to inflict pain. And the reason is because I've been, I was inflicted pain, you know? And, and, you know, you talked earlier about how your brother sort of knew, you said specifically, like, like he knows how to, he knew how to push the emotional triggers of your father, which is why he was hit. Um, that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to avoid as a, as a parent. I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm going to use the fear, even consciously or subconsciously, is because I don't want it to get to that point where, so if, so if this person is going to be sort of defiant to me, I want to nip that in the butt way earlier with fear so that when she's 15 and I give her a certain look, that look instills in her the right kind of fear rather than she remembers that I would beat the shit out of her if she did this thing. Does that, does that make, you know, am I, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I don't know. I just, I'm having a hard time like wrapping my head around the fear piece. Yeah. It's not that I don't like want I mean, obviously, as humans, we have, like, biologically and for survival need to be fearful of things. <laughs> but it's just well, right. hard for me to think as a parent that I, like, want to talk about or do something. I mean, I guess if, if the example were, like, finding a rope or touching the stove, that kind of thing. But I, I guess when I think about it, it's more, I'm just picturing, like, explaining um, when, when he was, you know, one or two, yeah, if I was more of that fear Fear is probably good. 
and you should try to instill some sort of fear. You just got to do that without having pain be the reason why, you know? And so I, I don't have a problem with fear as a parent. I mean, I can't, there are, there are problems with it. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying in this context, I have much more of a problem, especially one, one parent removed from having pain be my, be my, be my discipline. I, I at least hope it's evolution to go, okay, not pain, fear, and then maybe we can go a step further as we move on. But I will say this, you know, when I speak to my, you know, so I, I asked you about rye parenting. I don't know if you, you know, I did that. Yeah. So it's the idea we, we should talk about this, right? Cause it's the idea that you speak, right. And, 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 and you don't, you don't treat a baby like a baby. Right, like you don't you don't look at a baby and go, oh, it's a baby, and goo gaga. And no, you you look at a, at a at a being as a being, as a human being. They're they are just in a certain developmental spot, and but they're but in order for them to get to where you are faster, and I do think that that's our that is what our goal is as parents. Our goal is not to keep them babies. It's our goal is to make them adults better, faster, right? And so the way you do that is you talk to them normally, you explain things to them, not because you think that they understand, but because you're modeling what they should understand so that they understand it faster. Right? So that's, that's why when, yeah, that's why you don't hit somebody, right? Because when you're hitting somebody, it may, it, it may work, but you're not teaching them anything. You're, 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 you're imposing upon them a reaction that they have no basis to understand. So if you're going to do that anyway, if you're going to already understand that, they, that they're not going to understand by hitting, well, then isn't it better to talk, right? Because maybe they don't understand that either, but at least you're modeling something that when they understand it, they'll understand it faster because that's the model you've given them versus them having to understand things, you know, based on pain or even fear. Although I, I do think that fear is, is something that we need to use properly, you know, if that, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. And when I, uh, when I reviewed the website that you had sent over about this, um, one of the things that came up for me in reading it, these, I, I wasn't familiar with this specific approach, but it's a lot of the same types of things that I do and that I train other parents to do with their children. The one of the interesting pieces is what you were talking about with, um, you know, the, with the baby as the parent, like you're modeling things. And on the website, it talks about this mutual respect and interaction and um, basically giving them only enough help necessary so that they can like learn more independence on their own faster because a lot of the times you know as parents we just kind of do the things for our kids sometimes just because that's right. you know easier um that's right. but what i really what i really enjoyed about it was the part that talked about the time for uninterrupted play and freedom to explore because i think there there's often the opposite talked to especially like if you look at for moms the various resources that are out there and the importance of having a routine and like have you know schedule time for tummy time and schedule time for this and schedule time for that and all of those types of things instead of just like seeing what your child will do like you might need to set up certain things in the environment for them to play with 
so that they have stuff to explore. But I call what we call that in the work that I do is agendas. So, you know, the adult has their agenda of like what they think the child should be doing in that moment. And the child has their agenda of what they want to be doing in that moment. And oftentimes parents are so focused on their own agenda they miss out on like just truly seeing who their child is and letting them exist and develop into what you know great human they're going to be obviously parents can facilitate and help coach and that kind of thing like you were talking about but i think a lot of the times we get so caught up in our own selves that we forget to like give space for our children to just grow and be who they would be yeah, exactly. And so I, I want to give a little context to the listeners because uh, we talked about Rye parenting. So here's what Rye actually means. And then there's there's also derivatives of it. So textbook Rye stands for resources for infant educators. But what it actually, when you break it down, what it means is respect, interaction, and education. And the respect part, right? of the interaction is what Megan was just talking about, right? So it's the idea that, for example, when, so, and I experience this all the time. I'm sure you have the experiences, right? So like my daughter's the playground, right? And she's an infant, okay? She's, she she could barely walk, but she wants to go and climb the little staircase to get up to the jungle gym. And I see all these parents, I'll see all these parents in the same situation and they're just right behind the infant and they're just hoping that the infant doesn't fall and they're just and, and they're just holding the infant's hand and they're basically dragging this child up the staircase as if the child couldn't figure it out for themselves okay and so it's a yeah. fear-based it's a fear-based parenting you know where, where they're like i just don't want my baby to get hurt and what right parenting teaches is don't do that right let the baby go up if the baby falls down how far are they really going to fall Right now, obviously, if they're going up a steep staircase, that they're going to kill themselves. That's different, okay. But most jungle gyms are equipped in a certain way. Okay, so maybe if they fall, what's actually going to happen? They're probably just going to fall on the next step. They're probably going to roll down. They might bump their head. You know, they might even. What's the worst case scenario? They'll probably have, you know, like a like a like a a bruise or something. Okay, okay. Well, that happens. But guess what? That taught them a lot, and they learned that. So it's the idea that we as parents are not the ones who are teaching our children anything. Not that we can't teach them something, but that it's more important for them to learn it on their own. And the best example of this is playtime. So what Rye Parenting teaches is when, when, when kids are playing, especially at very young ages from zero to five, it's almost better. And again, this is not always, right? This is most of the time with consideration. What you should do is you should let them play, like just let them experience. And what our job is as parents is to is to be engaged, not with them, but as observers watching them so that they're the ones teaching us how we should interact with them rather than us pretending as if we know how to interact with any particular child. Right. So we give them the space to do whatever it is they're going to do, to climb the stairs, to, 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 to not have fear. And if they fall, the worst thing you can do is run up and say, Oh my God, Oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? No, you let them, they fall, you stand back, you wait. 
How are they experiencing this? Are they in pain? And you do that from afar. You don't, you don't run, you wait. That's the idea. Is that something that you, you, you kind of have found is a better approach or is that something that leads to maybe some negative things that maybe I'm not aware of? I, I think it, it, uh, you can't really picture what negative things it might lead to, um, that I'm aware of the better approach piece is it's harder sometimes for parents because of whatever their history has been from, you know, what they've witnessed people doing for raising children. I think it's a lot of pressure. I don't know, especially like looking at the differences between being a dad and being a mom, but, um, even though I tried my best to not have the pressure like of a typical mom, um, I still like was bombarded with it either way from my own mom and, and other sources. So there's certain pressures of like, well, and I see, I think it is like other moms that have kids, you know, around Taylor's age and they'll sit them down and be like, look at all the like colors they know and look at all this and look at all that. And the only reason that they're doing those things is because the parent has, instead of letting them freely explore and play and just like develop yeah, they've sat yeah. them down and done like trials with them to teach them those things right. and i'm like well that was weird um but then you're like well my kid's not doing that is that wrong like what's going on here am i not doing yeah. enough to teach him is he gonna learn enough just from you know me but i think that the key and why i, I don't think it would be negative is that observation piece um because so often especially now with cell phones and everything, people are so, again, in their own selves. <laughs> they're not observing their children. They're not in the present moment. They're not there. And um, yeah. and when they are there, it's only to tell them to do things or like demand things of them. It's not to have like a truly authentic interaction that's based around like supporting who that person is. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I think that that's exactly the point is that, you know, in my experience and in the things that I've studied, it seems to me, and maybe you can you can speak to this with regard to what you've studied, but it seems to me that as a parent, especially as a, as a parent of a very young child, that it's almost more important what that child teaches me as a dad than it is whatever I think I'm going to teach that child. And that spans every facet of my child. The moments that I realized after learning this with regard to right parenting, and I'm sure there's other disciplines that work the same way. The moment that I realized that, that, that it's not about me, and that's an easy thing to say. I don't think parents think that it's all about them. But I think that, you know, I am not trying to necessarily teach my child anything. That's not to say that I'm not teaching my child. It's just that whatever I teach my child specifically comes from what I know my child is teaching me at that moment. And like you said, it's about presence. It's about being present. I, I am not going to, if my child wants to do something, I am first going to see how they do it before I try to figure out what, you know, how I can best teach them. The, the best I can say is, Parents do this, this thing that I don't love, that, that I hate when I see them, especially at the playground. They project. They're projecting out. And we do this as adults because we have the, you know, we have the, 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 the privilege of having experienced things, right? So when that parent doesn't want that child to climb that staircase, they're doing it because they're projecting the possible outcomes of what this could or could not be. 
And in my view, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. The moment you're projecting so far out, you're not allowing for that presence to happen. You're, you're, you're now imposing upon them what you think you know, rather than letting the thing play out. You should, as a parent, in my opinion, and I think this is what Brian talks about, your job is to not be there to teach anything with regard to projecting. Your job is to be there to react to things and then become the teacher based upon the reaction of the present tense. And, and that's what I found to be really valuable about Rye, is that it allows me to sort of take, take some steps back and really understand and appreciate what that person, not child, but what that person is going through. The same way that I would do for you in any conversation, the same way that I would do for anybody in any given situation, I'm not gonna treat my child as being a child. I'm gonna treat my child as being an individual. And what they're experiencing is something I have to learn from in such a way that then informs me how to teach if I'm gonna teach anything. So yeah, that's that's my thing. Yeah. So we're here. Yeah, I think so yeah. What? Oh, I was gonna say that's great. It's great that that's what more people need. And I do I don't know like how, how many people are listening right now that may have situations where um, their children maybe aren't learning in the way that like you described, right? So for a lot of us, we're privileged in the sense that we can observe and um, sort of kind of just nudge along certain things and, and that typical development happens that you would expect to see. But then there's other situations where children are on different developmental paths and right. I don't, I, I'm, this is a newer area that I'm diving into even for myself because I, well, first of all, as a behavior analyst, we aren't on trained very well in general on development. That's a whole separate issue. But um, for even looking at developmental milestones and things that we would expect children to do, we're trained that if like a child isn't doing those things, then there's something wrong with that. And it's like pathologized right. and seen as like yes. negative. Um, so I've been diving more into the literature and resources around looking at strengths and focusing on basically what you described about really observing um, her and like how she's going to try to teach herself how to do it. And, and her, she's teaching you, you're not teaching her. I love that conceptualization because I think if more parents um, did that for their children, and saw them as individuals and really just like were flexible and like let go of so many things there whatever like path their child was on would be so much more positive for everyone right i mean she my child sets expectations for me as a teacher it's not that i don't teach it's that the expect the curriculum is being written by her i am not writing the curriculum she writes the curriculum and then i teach it to the best of my ability that's how it, that, I think we should do. We should do it that way. I mean, I think that's that's constructive. Uh, but hey, we're, we're we're talking to doctor here. We have a doctor in the house, guys. <laughs> for all six listeners, we have a doctor in the house, and she she's actually agreed with me on a couple things. So I'm 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 I'm, I'm running high here. I'm I'm having a great time. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening to Mike and I's discussion about spanking. I hope you enjoyed this clip and that you'll tune in for our next special feature from the Stereo app.